Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome, Vet Gurus here, Brendan with Mark, episode 138, Friday, May the 29th. 2020 lockdown continues mark well although starting to be eased a little bit i think in some places in australia but gee people are going bananas aren't they people are going bananas but i'll tell you what mark i i put some stuff online i cleaned out some of my rubbish or some of my bits that i've hoarded um and i put a couple of things online and one of the things i sold mark i put it up on ebay i think i should have put a higher price for it. It was a Guitar Hero Xbox 360 Guitar Hero drum kit. Oh, wow. With um, two um, guitars. So one bonus guitar that I threw in, which was a Fender Stratocaster <laughs> guitar. <laughs> um, and th- these were from the days when I, um, the girls and I would play um, play in a band um, and we play a little I think I can't remember whether I was the drummer or not. I was, I was one of the guitarists. Um, I think we rotated around. Yeah, so I'd, I'd cleaning out the the old little shed or the office out back, and um, I thought, should I throw these on the tip um, or no? I'll try and sell them, and I put it up for auction, and it was fifty dollars as the um, buy now price or the auction. And I think as soon as I put it up, somebody said they'd take it, so I should have put a higher price for it. So. <laughs> Next are, you day, on, are, you, are you on eBay a lot, Brendan? No, no, but um, oh, it reminds me of something else I'll tell you about in a sec. But um, yeah, so I had a um, 30-something hipster came along with his big um, beard and um, said he, um, he he loved it and he took it away So um, for $50 cash. So there you go. So that was good. I've got a couple of other things up, up there at the moment. Um, it just reminded me, what it reminded me of, Mark, is – when the girls were babies and um, the good old days when and Jane, the younger one, uh, the oldest one, had um, really bad colic. So I used to do the – we did the rotation and I'd be trying to settle her at 2 or 3 in the morning. You know what it's like, mate, when the kids were very young. And in those days we only had – well, we had, what, four channels on TV, didn't we? We had <laughs> here in Australia we had Channel 7, Channel 9, Channel 10 and Channel 2. Um SBS, which is the fifth channel, might have been there. So we didn't have the bajillion channels that we do have today. And three in the morning, I think there was only what one or two stations um, active. They used to shut down at night, didn't they? And it was the the, the shopping channels that were active around that time, and uh, they they timed it well because after about you know twenty times of watching the same ad for you know the the fat blaster vibro foot massager. Um, you sort of start thinking at three in the morning, gee, I, I think I need the little fat blaster thigh, you know, um, toner um, fat blaster. You end up buying all this stuff that you never use. And, um, yeah, it sort of reminded me of that. I'm trying to get rid of these um, things on eBay, um, although they're probably a little bit more useful than some of the things I bought when the girls were girls were struggling with their colic. I don't know where you can go with that one, Mark, but... <laughs> Well, I, th- I think um, the natural progression is where I've ended up, Brendan, is um, is the whole uh, um, 
uh, drunk purchases. So late at night, obviously, I don't remember them. And then about two weeks after, um, strange things pop in the mail and I go, I do remember seeing that on whatever, you know, Gumtree, eBay, Facebook's for sale, whatever. And um, in un, uh, un, un, with brown paper packages or something? I don't know. Um, well, ju- generally, um, they're, they're, you know, because those uh, – apps try Gadgets to or something well they try yeah but they they you know look at the stuff you've been looking at they listen to your voice and um then they try and sell you stuff that you might be interested in um and um and so they're you know odd um uh, vaguely medical things um that i think oh that might be you know the double pronged slide holder um you know, which obviously is made out of plastic, that um, that uh, is un- is entirely disposable. So, yeah, I think that's the natural progression. You'll get to that later on, Brendan. Once you once you clear the garage and you've got space, and you go online late at night, and you'll f- I'll fill it up again. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, I'd, yeah, I yes, yes. All I can say is yes. Um, <laughs> but um, I'm hoping I've so I've got a couple of other things on. On sale, um, on at auction that um, hopefully will sell. So I'll I'll let you know if they sell and what they were um, in future podcasts. So how's how have you been? Otherwise, how's the um, the clinic still reasonably reasonably steady or busy? We've been fairly um, we've been kept busy, which is which is good, and um, it's still tiring, isn't it? Trying to do the consultations with the current restrictions, but we're sort of in a little bit of a groove with it. But, um, yeah, you get one or two other um, tricky cases and it sort of, sort of throws things out a bit, doesn't it? I reckon it's a really interesting thing that the weight, the, you know, the the, the mass of um, responsibility has changed a little bit. Um, I, I've seen in our practice the workflow focus a little bit more on the the particularly the reception staff um, and um, and the the um, front ca- the the front of practice nurse. Um, you know that all that work has uh, taken on a much heavier load, and even when the workflow is organized so that it should be very similar the fact that it's um new and different and it only takes as you said one uh, thing out of order to throw it into disarray um it has been uh um it's been a, a considerable extra emotional weight on the practice and the background trepidation about you know global pandemic added to those work changes has made it you know, just very slightly more anxious place to be uh, gen- in general, I think, veterinary hospitals. Yes, and we have a new staff title too, Mark. We have a concierge now. Oh. Um, so, um, and that means whoever has to go out and grab the animal <laughs> out of the car um, and you just hold your hand out for a little tip afterwards, um, although it has to be a swipe and not a, you know, ideally not cash <laughs> with the current situation. Um, may we carry your carry your animal inside for you? Yes. Um, and it, it, I, I think you've had a couple of thoughts on whether or not um, things will change long term with the chances of... Lots of people want in this sort of practice or process um, 
forever um, for the, for their pets where they can just do drop-off consultations and um, that they will be a, a thing of the future that will continue into the future and I expect that that will be the case. Do you? I suspect you're right. I think that um, the, the, uh, the, the ease with which the general public has adapted to it, I think that um, I know that before the advent of mobile phones, you know, when back in the dim dark ages when there are only four or five channels on the TV, if people were waiting, they had nothing to do. And so the wait became a critical factor in their enjoyment or displeasure at being somewhere, veterinary hospital or otherwise. But since the advent of the mobile phone, I reckon you can largely leave people alone as long as they've got a, you know, um, uh, as long as you don't leave them there for hours. But sometimes I reckon you could. They would just sit there and... and uh, I'll tell you, right, you, you've, that's a very astute point there, Mark, in that I, I remember clients that the nurses would come in, the receptionists would come in and say, Mr Smith is a little bit upset. He's been waiting 15 minutes, his consult. He's 15 been, minutes ago. He's, um, been, he's been waiting like 6.2 minutes. This. That's right. That's right. And I'd, um, I'd be saying, look, I've just, I'm just making my coffee. Just give me time here. Um, yes, and you rarely get that these days. Although, let me tell you another little story. A good friend of mine, a vet- veterinary colleague of mine I went through university with, he worked at a, a welfare veterinary institution which had a very high number of clients and a, and a huge turnover of, um, well, a huge turnover of staff as well. But um, he um, he sort of got in the groove with it because it, they'd be allocated to either consultations or, you know, um, assessing animals for euthanasia or, or um, the surgery cases, mainly desexing. And if he was on the consultations, he, he used to stress out about it because he'd turn up nine o'clock and there'd already be, you know, 20 people in the waiting room and um, it would, wouldn't stop all day. Um, and he'd just learned to sort of cope with it and it'd come around to lunchtime where he'd walk around to the local pub to have lunch and he'd look out in the waiting room and there were still some people who, who'd been there at nine in the morning and I was still waiting for their consult at, at midday or one o'clock and he'd just learn to, okay, well, that's just the way it is. And he'd wander off for lunch for half an hour and come back and then start seeing the consults again. So some of these people were waiting for, you know, literally three to five hours or so um, because it was no no appointments um, and um, um, you just had to learn to, well, that's the way it is and, and, and not stress and not try and you know, um, burn through them all really quickly to try and see as many people as you can because the waiting room was was always full. Um, and the opposite was a, a cl- another clinic I, I knew of um, and I used to work at um, a few fair few clinics. Um, I did part-time or locum work at, at clinics around Melbourne area, probably 30 or 40 clinics over, over the years. And one of them just had a little chalkboard, Mark. Um, um, this was really old school. And you'd wander in and you'd put your name on, on the list. that You'd start at the top and you put Mr. Smith, you know, and then um, if you wandered in next, you put, you know, Mrs. Jones um, and you'd um, – and he'd, the vet would come in and he'd, he'd get his little um, – eraser and 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 say you know mr smith and he rub off number one um you know and they just have this rolling sort of list of people yeah um, wow and if you're quite canny you'd um you know you wait till other people are not looking and they'd um you'd rub off mr smith and you put your name on the <laughs> top and the vet, vet would come in and say mr mrs jones um yeah so it's interesting how things have changed but yeah you 
you're spot on, aren't you? As science awaiting people are just just so absorbed. They've all ninety nine percent of them have their mobile phone or their their laptop or whatever. And um, apart from during the COVID restrictions, they'd be sitting there in the waiting room and they'd start doing their emails or play yeah. a game or whatever. And yeah, we'd rarely get people saying, "Look, I've I've been waiting a little bit too." too long um although you do have those clients don't you mark you know that when that particular client is coming in if they're not seen within the first two minutes um that they'll that they'll kick up a fuss so you you always have the the usual ones that we know who to look out for yeah and the the little note there are little notes on the on the file that um you know don't keep and look some of them have uh, very good reasons we have a list of clients who have uh, cats and we work very hard to separate the cats from the other work so that the cats don't get stressed but we know if for whatever reason you know a lot of those cats have a a, a 10 minute window if you get them into the consult and get the fairly way onto them and do whatever you've got to do with them then everything will work out but if they're kept waiting much longer than that and they sense the owners getting anxious and then a dog walks past and they're in the consult room where they remember the last injection then you know you don't get a chance to do the things to them that you might otherwise have done to ensure their health yes and you just hope that you look on the on the the notes for that client as they come in um and the acronyms that are written there that um is the code about what is what's wrong or what's the problem with that client um you know the one that i always like is our um i look on the client and it says fork um, F-O-C, um, Mark, um, fear of chickens. Um, we have one client who's just absolutely terrified of chickens. I think, I think that'll make an excellent podcast for us just to run through a bunch of acronyms Phobias. and where they've come from. <laughs> yes, yes, although we'd have to be a little bit careful about what we do with that. Um, yes, so whenever this client is in the building, that we'd have to make sure there's no chickens anywhere near. Um, so there we go. Well, um, we better get stuck into our news stories, Mark. Um, you have one. Uh, you may as well go first. Um, I think you've got something about uh, something pink. One of my favourite colours, Brendan. Um, and um, this one is uh, um, uh, from the National Australian National Geographic uh, subsection of the World National Geographic. The pink manta um, uh, recently spotted off the Great Barrier Reef um, a manta ray um, that was coloured a, a rosy pink hue um, was photographed um, and of course the photos uh, photographer Christian Lane um, who was uh, snorkelling off the southernmost part of the Great Barrier Reef um, got some wonderful photos which went on to Instagram of Clouseau, Inspector Clouseau, um, uh, the 11 foot male reef manta ray um, and um, crikey's it a, a fish that you wouldn't miss if you ever saw it Brendan um, and the interesting thing about this was uh, this manta ray has been spotted variously uh, around the waters um, around Lady Elliot Island over the last um, four or five years. And there's been a number of, um, you know, theories about why the, the manta ray is, and crikeys, it's not just a subtle um, tinge of pink. This manta ray is bright pink and so people have proposed that um it might be due to an, a skin infection or um some uh, dietary you know maybe the the uh, manta ray much a la 
flamingo um, nutrition and colour. Maybe this is, has something to do with that. But um, some recent skin infection, isn't it, Mark? Oh, bloody hell, lasted for three or four years and it doesn't seem to miss one part of the body. But you can understand why people would say that, Brennan, because of our work with exotics where we do see uh, frogs and turtles and uh, some other reptiles develop that uh, that uh, septicemic blush it's often referred to where the the bacteria damage the the small capillaries and result in leakage of um, of uh, hemoglobin into the tissue and um, and we do get that sort of damage. Um, you could understand why someone who knew of that would look at this and go, crikey, that's the worst septicemic blush I've ever seen in my life. Um, but recent biopsies uh, have ruled those causes out. It's not a skin infection. It's not something to do with the... Um, you know, we're not the the uh, manta rays not shooting down to Antarctica and eating a whole bunch of krill or anything like that. Um, it does appear that it's a genuine genetic mutation in the expression of melanin. So most of these um, reef mantas uh, have um, black and white. So some of the extreme ones are all white. Some uh, others are all black, and lots of them have patterns in between. Um, but this particular one um, has a mutation that, um, well, it's suspected it's erythroism, which causes the the melanin to be deposited um, in a pink colour rather than a normal black colour. So, so there you go. It's a um, it's uh, the other interesting thing about it, Brendan. I would have thought um, that the unusual colour would have made this a prime target for predators, but I think once they've grown past those first few years and they're big enough that, you know, not much can take them on, um, it would appear that now the bright pink manta rays is uh, is not much at risk. But uh, you would have initially thought such a mutation would have been, well, deleterious, shall we say. Yes, and you learn a new word every day, don't you, Mark? Um or maybe not every day, erythrism, yes, abnormal pink colour or red colour. So, And you had that at one of our um, conferences, didn't you? <laughs> just that that was, I just thought was. of that. Yes. <laughs> Tell me how that happened. thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got um, our uh, wonderful colleague uh, Shane Raydell to blame for that. Um, I did go out on a a bird watching and photographing tour with Shane when we're in Adelaide, um, and um, and I did forget to put some um, some sunscreen on, and I did end up a nice rosy pink in the evening, um, and um, and yes, it wasn't erythroism; <laughs> it was definitely sunburn. And it's probably something similar to what you look like when you do your online ordering late at night, Mark. <laughs> yes. Well, my f first and only news story is I, I really love the video on this one. It's about um, bearded dragon lizards and their colour changes. And uh, it, biologists have found that lizards adapted to the red sands of central Australia they can't blend in with the yellow sands of the south as well as the local lizards, but they found that lizards nevertheless changed their colour to try and camouflage themselves as best they could. So the aim of this particular study was, and have you looked at the video, Mark, here? No, I haven't looked at it. I just was looking at the so photos. Jo 
jump um, into the video of that. Um, yeah. So it was about looking at how well bearded dragons can blend into their environment and um, trying to work out whether this ability is driven by evolutionary adaption or whether they're just responding to what they see around themselves. And the answer was basically that it was a bit of both. Um, and it's about how bearded dragons can change that skin colour and that, that they can become orange with jetpack beards um, in particular areas and in the other other areas where they need the yellow sort of sandy colour, they can turn to that um, sandy sort of colour. So they certainly change their colour in response to their surroundings and they don't think it is a particular conscious decision um, and they demonstrated it by plonking them, mark taking them um, and there's the, the photos there of that lizard in queensland showing the color change as they as it um, is placed on the log and changing from a very light color to a dark color and they mainly used male lizards um to to um experiment with um because they're the ones that are often displaying and um, patrolling their territories as well um but um with the video there i'm trying to find the video again mark um it's a bit of dragon on a tree trunk. Well, they've got two videos, haven't they? They've got a time lapse of a, a bit of dragon that was being placed on a tree trunk. Um, it was light colour, and then they place it on the tree trunk, and then it, they see it. Um, you see it um, developing a nice little grey colour to try and blend in um, with its background there. And they did the same with um, lizards in in a. Um, and I don't know whether I've found this on here. Did, is there another video there? I must have missed yep. it. Um, I can I with the video the link it, for it. Uh, okay. All right. Um, oh, well, I will show you the link. I'll put the link on vetgurus.com, Mark. Where, um, where I always go. So I'll, That's right, vetgurus.com. Um, so, yeah, they found there was little difference in how the lizards could change colour, but the range of colours they could produce was linked to their different habitats. For example, they found Mildura lizards were able to more closely resemble the yellow sands that predominate in the region, while the Alice Springs lizards in central Australia were better able to match their colour, which makes sense of their native red sands. Um, so, yeah, um, I just thought it was quite interesting with the videos that you obviously can't see at the moment, um, but the results showing that beta dragons do change colour in response to their visual background and illumination. And um, But they, de they d did demonstrate that they are, there are limits to how they can respond um, and that the differences are based on their local habitats or the subspecies, I suppose. Um, so it's another piece, according to the researcher, in what is the broader puzzle of understanding colour change in bearded dragons um, and, well, reptiles in general, Mark. So, yeah, quite an interesting little study. I am fascinated by... Um, the the colours in those wild um, inland bearded dragons because of the range of colours that are produced relatively quickly by selective breeding in captivity the the um, the the genetic rearrangements um, that mean you know it makes for a, um, a, a wonderful palette um, that the captive breeders can um, use and um, and uh, um, generate really spectacular animals not that i'm advocating and that I've, brendan yeah i think that's a an excellent topic for a future podcast mark um the the breeding or cross breeding of of um 
whatever you want to call it, morphs or, or different types of, of species, whether it's birds or, or if we, we might just stick to birds and reptiles when when we chat about it. But um, we'll ha- we'll definitely have to chat talk about that in a in a future future podcast because it's a bit of a controversial one, isn't it? Good topic to discuss. And sticking with reptiles, Mark, I think we should jump into our main topic this week, and it's. One that I thought of because we had a recent case um, of a snake that was a little bit bound up. Um, so we're going to talk about constipation in reptiles or gastrointestinal blockages. Well, we'll stick to constipation. And um, and it's not an uncommon email or call that we get from veterinarians inexperienced with dealing with reptiles. Um, and they have a client who says, my snake or my lizard or my, my, my reptile um, is bound up. And what do they do about it, Mark? Do they panic? Do they not panic? When do we start worrying about constipation in reptiles and, and what can, can potentially cause it and how we can prevent it? So that's sort of our topic this week. Do you want to kick it off, Mark? And, um, you know, what's normal? What's normal? How often should they poo? Well, it depends on the species, of course. Um, and so you're, you're relatively... Uh, high metabolic rate animals. So we might have, you know, our recent topic of discussion, the bearded dragon, we might have those guys. Um, I would probably recommend to our clients that they're not fed every day, but maybe three out of seven days a week, they get some food. And those animals should generally produce stools relatively, you know, within 24 hours after eating something. So they're going to produce that on a relatively um, a relatively uh, speedy basis, whereas the um, uh, frequency um, uh, the frequency related to how much they eat. Um, I suppose the argument is the same with um, you know some of our snakes that might not eat. Um, some of the large snakes might might not eat more than five or six times a year, um, and so the frequency of defecation is going to be only five or six times a year, but it would be relatively soon after um, having ingested a meal, and depending on the size of the meal, um, it might be uh, a day to five days after. So it varies, Brendan. Yes, and which leads to the second common question is, you know, what what, what is it? What is the signs of constipation or how would why would the client be contacting the clinic and saying, look, my snake is bung up, it's it, it's not pooing and and I don't know about you, Mark, but the most common reason why we get that call is because the client has noticed, not that the animal is behaving unusually and that they have, and this is where you get a good idea on how good the husbandry is or not with some of these clients, is that they, they keep records of how often their snake defecates or when it last defecated and they're looking in their little notebook and they see that hey my snake hasn't defecated for for six weeks or eight weeks or whatever and it normally um defecates every every week or two or several several times a month is that typically what happens with the phone calls for you mark too it's exactly the same brendan and it sort of speaks to the you know the the whole preservation reflex discussion the the concept that um, particular animals don't necessarily show clinical signs the same way that we would expect in in humans or in our more more commonly our more familiar um you know, companion animal dogs and cat species. But I also think there's an el- when we talk about a preservation reflex and the failure to necessarily pick up on things, I think it also uh, 
you know, its familiarity with the animals. And like you said, people who are keeping accurate records will pounce on this more quickly. Um, But also, you are right. These animals will often... um, will often show very, very little in the way of um, troubling signs, uh, despite the fact that their metabolism is starting to get all out of kilter because they are unable to pass feces. Yes. So what do we do if we have that consultation in front of us and we have the client in, especially for veterinarians not used to dealing with reptiles and they're presented with the client, and the animal, my reptile has not pooed for X number of days, weeks, months. Um, what's our approach to that case? Well, it's a bit of a, t- unsurprisingly, Brendan, it's a bit of a two-phase thing. It's a real focus on um, husbandry uh, to start with, getting a great history in the context of the husbandry of the animal uh, because you do need to know what they've been fed, um, whether they are likely to have access to foreign bodies which might uh, obstruct them and cause them not to go to the toilet. Um, an excellent history will lay the foundation for guidance into the next phase, which is um, a good thorough physical examination. Um, and often the primary tool in my experience in my physical examination armament is um, a decent palpation um, and having a good detailed feel um, of the reptile, whether it be a lizard or a snake, um, followed up with, um, well, p- particularly, I suppose the technique is important here, that it can, you, you have to be in a situation, particularly maybe with a large python, where you take the time to allow the snake to become familiar with the palpation because when you first touch them, they will be uncomfortable. They won't necessarily show that, but they'll flex all those um, muscles which protect the coelom and it will be very difficult to feel things in the first instance. And so um, being very gentle and supporting the snake, making it not panic um, and taking some time with palpation is a really useful thing. And I think that's something that should be done in any clinical examination of any reptile as gently palpating the um the ventral aspect of the animal and the, and the, with those snakes that, yeah, um, ventral midline and going from virtually the, the front of the snake all along to the to the cloacal region, cloacal region of the, the animal and um, getting a feel for what's normal, Mark, um, in order to determine what's abnormal, as we always talk about. And, yeah, um, it is pretty obvious with some of these snakes, if we stick to snakes for a moment, um, um, when they are bound up, isn't it, Mark, we can feel some pretty obvious fecal um, pellets that are that are banked up um, next to each other. Um, the good news with some of these, though, aren't they, Mark? Just the stress of coming to the vet clinic <laughs> or even being um, examined can be enough to to release the um, release the event, um, so to speak. And um, it's always something you need to be aware of with examining any reptile that um, there may be faeces and or urates and or urine. Um, flying across the room and um, I think we've all been hit haven't we Mark anyone who tells you they haven't hasn't handled enough snakes yet (laughs) and it is true though that um, you know it points to the fact that um, 
normal movement, the normal exercise that a snake would do, that, t- sticking to snakes for the moment, um, that normal movement, that normal muscular movement, the gastrointestinal tract doesn't do it all on its own in reptiles. And they, there is the requirement for some muscular stimulation from movement. And so a lot of snakes that might be kept in uh, environments that um, might not encourage us enough enough exercise um, that they they that is going to be one of the predisposing factors to having this develop and of course once they are stimulated gotten out of their routine enclosure put into a bag or a box and and they've got the vibrations of the car they do start to move around and and it will often be that that will be enough to to um, effect a treatment Brendan Yes, and it's getting back to that husbandry too and looking for, you know, what has changed and what has potentially caused them to, to bind up um, if we go back that one step and, and it may be that they're, they're feeding too much too often. They suddenly change the, the diet, so they're feeding um, some larger um, frozen thawed prey items to that snake, um, common common cause in lizards uh, that I find, Mark, especially how commonly kept lizards like bearded dragons are that they um, feed in too much of those those um, insects that have that sort of exoskeleton that might bind them up. For example, they feed in a, a massive number of crickets at any one time instead of trying to trying to vary the vary the insects or the invertebrates that they're feeding to them. So it's always as usual, as you mentioned, um, getting back to husbandry is a potential cause with a lot, lot of these. So let's say we've examined that, that snake and it hasn't released its its bowels on you, Mark, um, and we're still concerned that it is um, bound up. Um, the rest of the clinical exam is, is relatively normal and you don't think it has any other underlying condition there. You think it is a, a, a relatively straightforward constipation with that um, animal. What's what's our approach to it as far as treatment? Well, relax is my first tip, Brendan, that it is a relatively common thing. Um, and the best thing in the first instance, I think, is to correct those, um, those environmental factors to maybe give the... Um, we often find a a, um, a a warm water bath. A warm water bath has two benefits in this circumstance. That is, um, you're definitely not rehydrating the animal percutaneously. Let me emphasise that. But there is often some water that's absor- absorbed into the gastrointestinal tract per cloaca, or even some that's uh, ingested the front end. And as I'll talk about later, that can have a a very, very positive effect in these animals. But also the movement um, of gently swimming in warm water, the temperature change of the body, because often these animals will be, they might be in a good enclosure, but the pain might mean that they don't thermoregulate properly. So returning to normal blood flow with a swim in some warm water, um, that can be enough to um, get things moving along. Um, So I think the key thing I say to my clients, once I've got an uncomplicated one, one where I don't think that there's um, a huge amount of pathology going on, then I'll often try and just correct those husbandry things and, uh, and see what that does for a few days. Yes, exactly as what 
I would be suggesting to the client. And so it's sort of similar to the approach that I suggest with snakes that have a retained spectacle mark, um, that we take our time with it, that we don't have to get that spectacle off in that first consult and we send it home with the treatment aspects of that we recommend for it, which we have in a, another podcast. Um, and same story with these constipated ones. So we, 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 we tweak the husbandry that needs to be tweaked, Mark. Um, we send that snake home and, and mention to them to do those warm water soaks. And I think one key factor with that is, you know, how do we go about doing these warm water soaks? And my general recommendations of how to do it to a client who's not used to doing that with their reptile is, well, it's one, don't do it in the bath or the kitchen sink because <laughs> we shouldn't be doing it in a area that humans wash or, or bathe or, or, or clean things in. Um, so that could just be a simple tub. Um, it's um, I generally mention sort of temperature, water temperature. I just These days I'd usually say sort of um, baby bath warm, Mark, um, is the way I mention it, and it's an easy one to everybody can sort of associate with that sort of um, temperature, um, making sure the reptile does not drown. Um, and and people, some people don't realise that the reptile may, may drown um, and they just plonk it in this, um, whether it's a snake or a lizard or, or whatever, um, reptile, they plonk it in that tub and they walk away and they forget about it and they come back to a, a floating or sink, sunk dead reptile mark. Um, so put in. Put in something there that they can um, don't stress out in there. So for the snakes, it would be put in a branch in there or some sort of um, something they can um, grip around there, Mark. Um, in, um, so that and they're constantly monitoring that animal, and that temperature does decrease pretty quickly, doesn't it? So I usually say five or ten minutes maximum, um, as far as how they how long they go for that warm water bath, um, and they could do that, you know, once or twice a day, and it's such a simple, easy thing to do, and it's amazing how many reps that are that uh, are bound up that um, just warm water baths is enough to to get them moving um, if that doesn't happen mark what's our next step with it so you send it home and and you suggest to them to do the warm water ba- bathing and they just uh, their environment and their husbandry they crank up the temperatures if it was a little bit low and they they do a clean and a, and a change of their their substrate um, and it comes back in another couple of weeks. It's looking the same, still bound up. What do we do then? Well, I think that that's when it does become uh, a little bit, you know, the necessity becomes um, that we need to take some more direct intervention. Um, and, and our routine sort of plan of attack there would be to ensure that the animal is adequately hydrated. We have tried to make sure that's the case by getting them to swim at home, but it might actually be that we've got to um, either um, provide them with um, uh, oral fluids um, or even uh, provide them with fluids per uh, cloaca and per rectum to ensure, first of all, that they're hydrated more generally, but also that the the area around the obstruction, the the constipated um, uh, uh, pellet in the in the colon, is well hydrated as well. We'll often uh, do that sort of thing, particularly the the enema style intervention under a short general anaesthetic so that we can place everything um, without causing any damage. Um, And we'll always harvest some samples um, when either when the faecal pellets passed or when we flush that area with fluid um, because there are some parasite circumstances in the large bowel which will sensitise the large bowel and and trigger these problems and we want to make sure that we're across those as well. Yes, 
continue. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are times when we will um, go to surgery, um, and particularly we find this. Um, there's, I'm just trying to imagine now um, circumstances where we would have, um, you know, those. Uh, there's not many times where close to the cloaca we're having to go to surgery, um, but um, there definitely are times when there are masses further up the the gastrointestinal tract, um, the small intestine or stomach, um, where we do have to um, to go in and, and uh, uh, move things, um, and uh, we always do then discuss that surgical option as a way to resolve that. Yes, and one of the and there are particular species that that exhibit particular signs with um, severe constipation, aren't they? And I mentioned bearded dragons, Mark, and um, I'm sure you see this with some of the juvenile or sub-adult bearded dragons that develop a, a hind limb paresis um, due to a constipation. And I think what's happening there is they're so bound up and they have have some of those very hard faecal pellets and the classic there would be what I mentioned before, those, those um, crickets or insects, um, and then they're pushing dorsally and and um, on the nerve roots there and um, then the this is where they're presented with yeah my, my lizard is paralyzed or it's broken its leg and it may be one of these constipation cases do you do you see many of those well I've got a bit of a, a question for you about those um because we definitely see those cases but I it's a chicken and egg thing for me I often think that um the, the as you said the constipation with those exoskeletons rich in chitin that aren't digestible, um, that those reptiles are additionally prone. But I think that um, a large number of those are metabolic bone disease bearded dragons who already have some maybe motility problems because they don't have enough calcium to affect muscle contraction and the bones of the spine are not uh, lined up properly so the nerves are not functioning um, well and so all that snowballs and it's often hard to tell whether the constipation starts it or the constipation complicates it what do you think about that 100 percent, mark spot on it was the second part of that <laughs> yes um, a lot of them i'd always be thinking um, a vast percentage of them we have the underlying calcium vitamin d deficiencies with those yes absolutely yes. well i know we're running out of time but i have one more question for you um i so we see both in birds and reptiles, the animals that produce urates, um, they reflux the products of the urinary tract. So they come down into the cloaca and then they get refluxed up into the colon in an attempt to draw out more water from the urine. And then often the fecal pellet and dried out urates get passed together. Um, so the urates have a complicated pathway through the urinary tract, up into the colon, back out, down to the cloaca and outside. And I see a large number of these, um, you know, um, sleepy animals, animals that are um, not active, not exercise, don't have large enclosures. Um, and because reptiles have a wider range of in inverted commas, normal hydration status, they can be much more dehydrated um, than a mammal and still look relatively normal, um, that these animals get irritated bowels with the urate stones that deposit in the terminal colon. And the process of 
mucus secretion mixed with normal hydration that facilitates the passage out of those things goes awry and they end up with urate stones glued to the inner wall of their um, colon, which forms the plug and then you get fecal pellets behind it. Is, am I making this up or is this a thing that you see as well? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm making it up. No, I, I see this as well. And I think that's when we get into these more complicated ones and, and we haven't mentioned the, the, the other workup aspects that we'd be doing that includes, you know, radiographs and your, some of these, you see these obvious sort of urates, um, radio opaque in there and, and the bloods as well. Um, we'd be recommending for these non, non, um, the, these non simple ones there, um, that we have the ongoing issues. So we start to work it up like any other condition, don't we, Mark? Um, and we may see changes on the bloods as well, um, with them. But yes, um, and, and that, it's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? I mean, some of these we may get away then we're just doing a bit of a bit of an enema um, equivalent there, or the clo- cloacal enema um, to help help clear things out there. But yes, we will get complications um, with other systems apart from just the straight um, gut there, the gastrointestinal system with them. So, yeah, most definitely, um, I see it. So, yes, you're making it up, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, um, and it's it just reminded me of something that we had in our our last um, face to face conference. There, we had Helen McCracken from Melbourne Zoo do a do a summary of the the anatomy of the the rear end of of reptiles, and it was very it was fascinating, wasn't it, Mark? Um, did you see that? Were you did, there? I, no, you went. Yes, I, I I'm pretty sure I well, if I didn't see it, I'm well aware of the the um maybe I just dwelt on the article for. Um, the the in the proceedings for too long, but I know every time that um, that I you know I I feel that I've got a decent grasp of the anatomy of many of our um, uh, unusual and exotic species, but each time you look into more detail, um, they they they're fascinating and different, and and um, and it does help to explain the way anatomy always does. It does help to explain the etiology of some of these conditions if you're more across the specific differences. Yes, yes, um, and it's gee, it's amazing some of the some of the technicalities and the details of that cloacal region because she looked at the um, original description I think in Maida's um, textbook of reptile medicine and surgery and thought um, this isn't quite right and. Doing a typical Helen, she did lots of necropsies of different um, types of reptiles and and worked out that um, things are different, aren't they? In in different types of reptiles, who would have thunk it, Mark? <laughs> yes. Um, so I think with that, so our summary is for these um, blocked up or bound up um, constipated reptiles is um, if they clinically appear normal, always concentrate on the husbandry and, and don't panic and, and do the simple things like the warm water baths, etc. Um, and th- then if that is not um, not helping, then we need to start um, working up the case and doing our more traditional, you know, diagnostics and um, going from there. Um, any other final thoughts, Mark? Just I was reflecting back on those lizards on the stumps in uh, your the article you contemplated, and I I reckon they wouldn't have much trouble going to the toilet in their environment, Brendan. Yes, environmental enrichment is very important, isn't it? We don't we most of our pet reptiles are big, fat slobs, aren't they? They're not doing much, and they're getting a bit like us in lockdown, Mark. 
We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.